This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Constantly reducing maternal mortality, constantly reducing neonatal mortality, under five mortality. That's really the metric that drives our foundation. That's billionaire Bill Gates on supporting African efforts to develop innovative approaches to confront hunger, disease and poverty. Details coming up. Also, the Global Climate Change Conference is extended. Equatorial Guinea's president is expected to be re-elected again Sunday. And excitement builds for the start of the Soccer World Cup. We'll have these stories and more on African News Tonight. But first, our top story, the COP27 Global Climate Summit in Egypt is winding down. VOA's Heather Murdoch is on the phone line from Sharm el-Sheikh to update us on the latest. Hello, Heather. Welcome back to African News Tonight. Thank you. So I guess the major news today is that the talks have been extended by one day. Why is that? They've extended by one day because they have not come to an agreement um, that they they were hoping to make by Friday night. So they simply haven't finished the work that they promised to do. It's still a very tight deadline to try to come to an agreement on something that so many parties are so far away from. by tomorrow, but, you know, we're hoping still. So could you elaborate on some of the key sticking points? Sure. The main sticking point is the issue of loss and damage. This was an issue brought to the table from the beginning of this conference. Everyone knew it would be a thorny issue, but it's important, and it's the first time that world powers are talking about it. Um, Basically, it means how are we going to have rich countries, countries that produce the most carbon emissions, pay for poorer countries that suffer the most from these emissions and from this climate change. Um, And so far, there hasn't been a deal made. The European Commission did make an offer for a kind of fund um, and saying that this is their final offer, and several countries have, have signed on to say that they will help fund it, Um, but it still hasn't been agreed on formally because there are some issues. Some countries say it is not uh, a a good deal because it ties funding to emissions, so it includes emerging economies having to pay into the funding. It's not what was wanted from the beginning, which was a pure fund to pay for the people on the front lines of climate change suffering the most. And the world is getting warmer. Can you talk a little about warming temperatures uh, increasing, and if so, by how much? Yes, well, they did. One thing that was agreed at this conference was to keep the language in from the Paris Agreement in Glasgow to uh, keep the goal of the world warming to a maximum of 2.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, with the goal being no more than 1.5. This goal, 1.5 degrees, we are nowhere on track to meet this goal. And currently, we're about 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and we are seeing unprecedented fires and floods, heat waves, and other climate-related disasters. So, as you can imagine, 1.5 degrees, which is 
the aspirational goal that we're not even close to actually meeting, um, or meeting as in keeping that to be the upper limit, um, that's going to include far more disasters. So no matter how you spin it, it is a heartbreaking thing, but we are still hoping that they, the world powers can limit global warming enough to avoid the greatest disasters, um, such as the entire uh, destruction of all coral reefs and glaciers and countries and cities around the world. So the UN Climate Conference in Egypt, uh, like I mentioned earlier, has been extended until Saturday. What are the expectations for the continued talks? Will an agreement be reached? It's really up in the air. The president of the conference and also the UN Secretary General, they both commented that we are almost out of time and that the parties are uh, the Global North and Global South or the industrialized countries and, and the developing countries um, aren't, aren't trusting each other, aren't working together as they should have been from the beginning. So there's a lot of talk that this might not happen. However, it is hopeful that they did extend, and they're giving it another day, which does indicate that perhaps they're moving a little bit further toward the deal that might happen. VOA's Heather Murdoch at the COP27 Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Thank you for your input. Thank you. Voters go to the polls on Sunday in Equatorial Guinea, with many observers expecting that President Teodoro Obiang Nguame Mbasogo will be re-elected again. Obiang and his Democratic Party of Equatorial Guinea, PDGE, has ruled the country for 43 years. In the last election, the 80-year-old leader won with 93.7% of the vote. Obiang will face challengers from two parties, the opposition, Convergence for Social Democracy, CPDS, and an ally of the ruling party, Social Democratic Coalition Party. Opposition candidates Andre Esono Ondo of the CPDS has said he would win if the vote was free and transparent. The polls were moved up from next April to cut costs and to coincide with legislative, senatorial, and local elections. The ruling party controls 99 out of 100 seats in the National Assembly. The new UN envoy to Libya, Abdullahi Batili, said in his first report to the UN Security Council this week that some institutional players are actively hindering progress towards elections. Batili warned against prolonging the interim period as Libya could become even more vulnerable to political, economic and security instability as well as the risk of partition. Wolfgang Porstai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohamed al-Shanawi how tension is rising in Libya. Batili, who has a deep understanding of the situation in Libya, is perfectly right. Libya is not yet at the boiling point, but it is slowly and steadily moving closer. There are several reasons for this. The distribution of oil revenues is perceived extremely unfair by most of the Libyans. There are dire living circumstances. Libya has just 6 million inhabitants and Africa's largest oil reserves. There is an endemic corruption and a lack of security almost all over the country. And extremely important, there is no serious perspective for elections. And this means for the population, there is no peaceful perspective for a change. We had already once such a deep frustration among the population, albeit partially for other reasons. In late 2010, early 2011, at the eve, 
before the revolution. General Khalifa Haftar, commander of the self-proclaimed Libyan National Army, remains entrenched in eastern and southern Libya, and his recent speeches appearing to threaten a new war if the political stalemate persists. He said two weeks ago, we are waging the decisive battle for liberation, whatever the price and however long it takes. Could Libya slide back to armed conflict? Haftar is the product of the grievances in the east and partially also in the south. His significance increases if the people don't see another option. On the military side, there is absolutely no way that the LNA could launch a successful offensive to take Tripoli, at least not as long as the Turkish military is present in Libya. And Haftar is certainly aware of this. Therefore, he aims probably to exploit an eventual civil uprising in the capital. But I doubt this would work. The people from Tripoli would lie immediately if Haftar starts a new move towards the capital. But in the increasing likely case that the Syrenaika and Fezan declare a federalist state based on the 51 constitution, a war over the oil crescent is highly likely. So altogether, my answer to your question, could Libya slide back to armed conflict, is unfortunately yes. This could very well happen. On Thursday, a few minutes after landing at Tripoli Airport, Greek Foreign Minister Nicolas Dindias refused to disembark from the plane after realizing that Libyan Foreign Minister Najla Mangouche, the Libyan official who in October signed a Turkish-Libyan maritime hydrocarbon deal, was waiting on the tarmac to greet him. What do you make of that? Dendias had planned to travel to Benghazi and to Tobruk to discuss the Maritime Hydrocarbons Memorandum of Understanding and the role of Turkey in Libya with LNA Commander Haftar and with HCS Chair Aguila Saleh. The other second main purpose of the trip was to attend an event to present the Greek contribution to the World Food Program project to rebuild Benghazi's port. This port is a key entry point for delivering food and humanitarian assistance, not only to eastern Libyan, but to the whole Sahel region. PC chair Mohamed Al-Menfi is the former Libyan ambassador to Greece, and as such, he has a quite good relationship with Dendias. So he called and asked Dendias to pass by in Tripoli to meet also him. Dendias agreed on the condition not to meet anyone from the Dabeba government. And Al-Menfi said, yes, that's okay for me. In Tripoli, on the tarmac, just before exiting the plane, Dendias realized that Minister of Foreign Affairs Mangush was already waiting for him outside of the plane, together with numerous journalists and cameras. So he decided to depart from Tripoli immediately. Prime Minister Dabeba, who is extremely interested in international especially European recognition, wanted to use the opportunity, in contrast to the agreement, to force a meeting of Dendias with Al-Mangush. If Dendias would have met with Mangush, this would have been for Dabeba an implicit recognition of his government. And Dendias was aware of this and wanted to avoid this by all means. Of course, it can be assumed that Turkey was delighted that the visit was cut short, but it is unlikely that the Libyan behavior was on Turkish orders. That was Wolfgang Postai, former Austrian uh, military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed Al-Shinawi. Reuters says Tunisian police fired tear gas to disperse crowds protesting against the government's response to the deaths of local people in migrant shipwrecks. Protesters in the town of Zarzis were trying to reach the site of a Francophone summit this week on the island of Jerba. 
According to the French news agency AFP, the protesters say the government has been dismissive about the drownings of migrants in the Mediterranean Sea while trying to reach Europe. They say the government has failed to adequately search for bodies or identify the dead before burial. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. Zambian President Hakeinde Hichelema has called for stronger partnerships between African governments and the private sector to develop information and communications technology in the education sector. Hichelema made his remarks at the Ministerial Africa Innovation Summit with more than 300 delegates from 40 African countries in the capital, Lusaka. The two-day summit ended today. Kathy Short reports from Lusaka. The Africa Innovation Summit is an Africa-wide and homegrown initiative aimed at harnessing the innovation potential of the continent. It works together with a global education partnership which has similar objectives. The meeting aimed to mobilize the people, especially those with the power to act, including investors, policymakers and others to promote and build an enabling environment that will let new ideas flourish. The summit brought together governments, the private sector, civil society and pioneers in Africa's education sector. This year's theme was digital transformation in education and skills development for Africa. At the end of the two-day event, delegates pledged to ensure that every child has access to education and computers in classrooms to enhance their knowledge in both urban and rural areas on the continent. They say this enhances the learning process, enabling children access to lessons even remotely. The delegates called for mutually beneficial partnerships with the private sector, which will in turn provide affordable computers in school as well as resources to invest in education. In his remarks at the event, Zambian President Hagainde Hichilema emphasized the need to invest heavily in education through the use of technology. So partnerships are the way to go. And I'm talking about real and impactful partnerships between our individual governments and industry. I think it's high time that our educational systems and curricula began to train at an early age again another dynamic subject of entrepreneurship early on in the school system. And speaking earlier at the event, former president of Tanzania, Jakaya Kikwete, said Africa is facing an education crisis that has seen over 100 million children drop out of school. Kikwete is the chairman of the board of directors of the Global Partnership for Education, which focuses on enhancing education financing in more than 80 lower-income countries. He has called for massive investment in education, the inclusion of the marginalized children in the school system, and political will from African governments to move forward. Since its inception 20 years ago, the Global Partnership for Education has helped 160 million more children, including twice as many girls as before, to attend school in partner countries and boost learning outcomes. 
Achieving a quality education for Africa's children requires us to reimagine and transform education systems. The technological revolution sweeping the world is beginning to have a profound impact on Africa. Educators say this presents an opportunity to hit the reset button and reimagine the education landscape by addressing the challenge of exclusion to achieve quality education for all in Africa. I'm Kathy Short for VOA News in Lusaka, Zambia. Ethiopia has begun exporting electricity to Kenya as part of a 25-year deal between the two East African countries. The French news agency AFP reported Kenya's Energy and Petroleum Regulatory Authority says it began importing power yesterday and will initially import 150 megawatts before increasing it to 300 megawatts over the next three years. Ethiopian Electric Power says its Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam on the Blue Nile will ultimately be able to generate up to 2,000 megawatts and generate up to $100 million a year. Ethiopia already sells power to Sudan and Djibouti and has signed memorandums of understanding with South Sudan, Tanzania and Somaliland. Microsoft co-founder and billionaire philanthropist Bill Gates has reaffirmed his commitment to Africa, promising to work with countries to support breakthrough solutions in health, agriculture, and other critical areas. From the Kenyan capital Nairobi, Ruben Chama reports. Bill Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, told reporters his foundation will spend more than seven billion u.s dollars over the next four years to support african countries and institutions working to develop innovative approaches to confront hunger disease and poverty gates spoke late thursday in nairobi on his first trip to africa since the covid 19 pandemic began he said the new commitment is in addition to existing funding to multilateral organizations, including Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. What we counted in the $7 billion is actually delivery programs, you know, buying vaccines for Africa, buying paying for R&D to have better seeds here in Africa. That covers health and agriculture. Nigeria, of course, is in that $7 billion. And Nigeria would be the largest of our sub-Saharan spending, you know, just because of population of greater than 250 million. You know, there's just a lot of children born, a lot of things to be done there. The billionaire philanthropist said these resources have helped strengthen health systems and increase access to health care in African countries, contributing to dramatic reductions in the rate of child deaths from diseases such as diarrhea, pneumonia, malaria, and measles. Constantly reducing maternal mortality, constantly reducing neonatal mortality, under five mortality. That's really the metric that drives our foundation. We're very proud we're part of the movement with many other partners that during this century, Child mortality has been cut in half, from 10 million year children dying a year to less than 5 million a year dying. Now, during the pandemic, that number has been flat, so we're, we need to get back to that improvement curve. This week, 
Gates spent time visiting primary health care centers, medical facilities, and agricultural research institutes to learn from Kenyan and regional partners about programs and approaches that are succeeding and about remaining obstacles. One area of success has been in reducing child deaths. Kenya happens to match that global percentage going from 8% under 5 death rate to now about a 4% under 5 death rate. And that's, it's the pneumococcus vaccine, the diarrhea vaccine, it's the malaria bed nets, it's the nutrition. All of those things have come together to create really fantastic progress. The latest commitment from the Gates Foundation comes as the world grapples with overlapping crises that are worsening hunger, malnutrition and poverty for millions. Even before the war in Ukraine disrupted the global food system, African countries were facing severe climate shocks including droughts, locusts and flooding. Today, 278 million people across Africa suffer from chronic hunger with more than 37 million people facing acute hunger in the Horn of Africa alone. COVID-19 has also caused significant setbacks in immunization and stored decades of progress made in combating HIV, AIDS, malaria and tuberculosis. Ruben Chama, VOA News, Nairobi. Just before the start of the World Cup, the Senegal national team has learned Sadio Mane will not be with them. A knee injury has knocked the star of the Teranga Lions off the team's list. What is the Senegal World Cup team worth without Sadio Mane? The answer in this report from our correspondent in Dakar, Seydina Abaguyai, narrated by VOA's Mokbiliaparo. Top scorer in the history of the national selection and second in the 2022 Golden Ball, Sadio Mane is at the zenith of his career. Considered the soul of the Senegal national team, the Bambali native is involved in more than 50% of the national team's goals when he plays. What is Senegal without Sadio Mane worth? For former Lions and members of the National Football Technical Department, the answer is simple. To see what the team is worth without Sadio, the other players must assert themselves. Yatma Diop is a legendary former Senegal international player. Sadio, it is true, it's an international value. But if he doesn't play, he can't play. The others will do the job. Maybe if he was there, it would be a plus. But that does not mean that because he's absent, that Senegal can't achieve results. If that is it, it's not worth it. It's not a team. Dembe Mbai, the coach of Senegal's under-23 national team, thinks other team members will make up the gap. Yes, he's an attacking player. But as the coach said in his press conference, he's a group. And I think that at the attacking level, we have quality attackers. And so I trust them, whether it's Bulaye or Iliman or all the others, to make up for the absence. Some sports fans worry about the consistency of the Lions' offense without Mane. More Basin Niang is a journalist with Jolof Sports in Senegal. I do not see the line of attack capable of carrying this team in so far as Ismail Sar, as well as Bulaye Dia and Famara Didu are not consistent in their performances. 
I also give the example of Bamba Diang, who plays little with Olympic de Marcel. So if Sadio does not participate in this World Cup, it will be very difficult for Senegal to go beyond even the round of 16. Top scorer in the history of the Lions of Taranga, with 34 goals, Sadio Mane has been involved in 12 of Senegal's last 25 goals in the Africa Cup of Nations and the World Cup. His withdrawal from the team will be a blow to many who have rested all their hopes for Senegal in the World Cup on him. Uh, and in more World Cup news, soccer's international government body, FIFA, has confirmed today the sale of alcohol will be banned at all eight stadiums. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehi Yiswuhib in Washington for all the latest developments on the continent. 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.